Hey, welcome to night school. It's a Saturday night here, and I didn't think I was even going to do one of these today. Famous last words, but I'm just overflowing with things to say, things I'm thinking about. And so it's just inevitable right now for me to be doing these constantly. Whether anybody can keep up, whether anybody can maintain interest is just, you know, that's incidental. I got to do these right now just for myself. You know, and so many of these ideas I feel like I've covered before. But I do like revisiting ideas because there's always something else. There's always something else to add. I feel like something, some other weird mutant growth can always be added to an idea and that's something that's just it's just a part of being a person is you'll revisit certain ideas and realize there's another part of them that you hadn't thought about before and that often happens with this show right after I record an episode you know my neurosis kicks in and I realize that I either didn't explain something well or I misstated it And with the last episode, that was true for this idea of symmetry, you know, because I made it sound like a triangle can't be symmetrical. And of course it can. Of course, if you look at a a pyramid-shaped triangle, it can be split in half and perfectly symmetrical. But that's not what I meant. It's not what I meant. You know, when when I was saying symmetrical, when I was referring to symmetry, I meant primarily... Primarily something that has two lines of symmetry, where it can be divided in identical, four identical quadrants, maybe. I don't know how how much of this matters. It just crossed my mind, like, right after I finished recording the episode, I was like, you know, I made it sound like I think a triangle can't be symmetrical, when I know that certain triangles can. An equilateral triangle can be divided into many different smaller triangles that are all equal in size and shape. And I don't even understand geometry, and I know that. Barely. I barely know that. I don't even think I should take credit for knowing that. Um, And then the other idea that crossed my mind after that, just another idea that's crossed my mind in general, because I will refer to the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And when I use that, I mean that in a very lowercase g. I don't mean that in the sense of Gnosticism. Even if I say Gnosticism sometimes, I don't even mean it in the act, as far as the actual belief system of Gnosticism goes, which is something I don't completely understand or follow. To me, it almost seems like a... To me, Gnosticism almost seems like a half-assed secular way of integrating Christianity into your life. And I know that's not true, but it it does come across like a way to get around the rules of Orthodox Christianity, which I think is fine. I I actually don't have any problem with somebody doing that. Um, But I just, it's not my belief system. So when I talk about gnosis, I mean it in the original Greek sense. I mean it as experiential knowledge or awareness Baddie wants to play tug of war. If you can hear his his tug, he has a tug of war growl. It's his power growl. Um, and I'm playing tug of war with my my foot. I'm trying to pull on his little rope toy with my foot, and you know he's playing along. He doesn't mind foot or hand, as long as you play tug of war with him, he's happy. But yeah, I use gnosis in a lowercase, more of the Greek, you know, just the original Greek use of the term, which is spirituality, spiritual knowledge or awareness that comes through your own experience rather than, you know, because I mean, I, I know one of the ideas in Gnosticism relates to, it's basically going with, with that sort of idea of experiencing God to know God rather than having blind faith without some sort of experiential relationship. Because many people who follow Christianity haven't necessarily had an experience that they would consider that transcendental, where they actually feel like they've come to know God. And I'm, I'm of course, assuming a lot about Christians, um, as everybody seems to do. 
I'm just like everybody else. I assume things about Christians. But, you know, there is that idea, one of the divisions I know between Gnostic Christianity and good old Christianity, as if there's only one, as if there's only one Christianity, but still, one of the divisions I know relates to awareness of some sort of spiritual entity and having a direct relationship with that, opposed to simply having faith in one. And somebody who's into Gnosticism might tell me I'm wrong, but that's just my superficial understanding. And I'm just clarifying that when I say Gnostic, I don't mean it with a capital G. I don't mean it necessarily with an ism at the end of it. Just the word Gnosis. Yeah, I want to say a little more about ritual and decoration, because that's been a constant theme lately. And one of the most obvious ways that we ritualize and decorate something that doesn't necessarily need to be ritualized or decorated in the secular world is fitness and exercise and sports for that matter, but in particular, personal fitness. Because if you say that somebody is sporty or they're dressed in a sporty way or they're in workout clothes, we know exactly what that means. There are stores, there are brands where they make clothes that not only provide comfort for working out, whether it's lifting weights, running, anything, not, not only do they work well for that, but they look the part too. And that's the part that gets kind of out there for me, and a lot of people don't realize it, is, you know, there is no look to fitness. And you think about fitness through the eons, where, you know, Roman soldiers or some, some you know, People 2,000 years ago who were extremely fit weren't wearing spandex or gym shorts, but they were still obviously able to become physically fit. You know, when there's an ancient statue of David and he's ripped, you know, he didn't get ripped by wearing gym shorts and spandex. He wasn't wearing Under Armour. But, you know, obviously you can get ripped without wearing sporty clothes. But we do have this idea that you need to wear them. We have this idea that if you're going to the gym, if you're going for a jog, if you're lifting weights, there's a certain way that you should dress. And part of that is function because certain clothes do make that easier. Certain clothes are more comfortable or suited for doing that activity. But you don't necessarily need them. And there are substitutes that would work just as well. And some of those substitutes don't look sporty. Not everything that somebody wears while working out has to be sporty. But yet we like to look sporty. People in general, when they go to the gym, they want to look like somebody who's going to the gym. And that's where decoration and ritual come into this, where it's not that if they don't dress that way, they can't do that activity, but it gets them in the mindset. It makes them feel like they belong at the gym in that moment. It probably helps them actually go to the gym. It propels them there. It, it's a transformation in a way. It's not exactly Superman going into a phone booth and he's no longer Clark Kent, but it's not that far off from that either because something about putting those clothes on is sort of a ritual that makes them ready to go do this certain activity that requires a certain motivation and it makes them feel like the kind of person who does that thing. It's not unlike the example I keep using of somebody going to their high school or college graduation and wearing the cap and gown. It's not that wearing the cap and gown suddenly makes you an actual graduate. You're a graduate no matter what, as long as you got good grades and finished school. But wearing that cap and gown is sort of a transformation. You go into the phone booth as Clark Kent, the high schooler, and then you come out as Superman, the college kid, college man. So it's, it's the same thing, and we do it many times over in our lives. I mean, an obvious one is simply wearing a uniform for work even if it's not like a Burger King uniform, even if it's not your subway uniform where you have to wear a little visor that transforms you into a subway employee, 
It could just be dressing nice, office casual. If you dress in office casual clothing, you're better at doing office casual things. You're a better office worker. And you might be. You know, I've worked in offices before where they had no dress code and you had people wearing... I mean, there was a lady... I worked in one office where there was a lady who wore... She was like in her... Probably in her mid to late 50s, maybe even 60. And she would wear those sweatpants that say juicy on the ass. And tank tops. And I didn't care. But it's just... You know, I I think people didn't like it. I think it came across as unprofessional. I think she didn't seem very office-like. And you know, honestly, she was kind of... She had a flair for drama, and she caused a couple issues, now that I think about it. Would she have caused those same issues if she wasn't wearing juicy sweatpants? Are those juicy sweatpants? I don't know. Maybe she would. Maybe she wouldn't have. Um, But the point is is that she was not dressed in what we would consider office casual clothes. And, you know, I've worked at places where I wore a ball cap every day. A ball cap. I dressed how I wanted. But there is something to dressing nice, like... Even at, I think it was at the same place, you know, initially, even though they said there was no dress code, I remember my first month there, I dressed pretty nice. I wore button-up shirts and slacks and just, you know, fairly nice shoes. I didn't want to overdress, but I wanted to look like somebody who belongs in an office. And then when I realized that nobody cared and I was already accepted there, then I loosened up a little bit. But there is something to looking the part. There is something to that decoration. It might not actually make you do your job better, but it might give you an added sense of confidence. And that's strange, considering your skills have nothing to do with what you're wearing. It's all in your brain. It's all a trick. But it does make you feel a little bit different because if you're, you know, you're not going to look that way in your house. You're not going to dress that way in your house. And that's one of those self-help things that they recommend. I mean, it does. It goes back to some of the earliest self-help where they'll tell you to dress the way, dress for the job that you want, not the job you have is one of those cliches. And it's not just a way of being better at the job you have. It's also supposedly a way of attracting the job that you want, even if it's not at the place you're working, like even if it's not a promotion at the place you're currently working at, there's something about dressing that way that will help you become the thing you want to become. Your mind changes. And I've even heard that about your house. Like if you work from home, people will say, don't just wear the yoga pants. If you're working from home, don't just wear the yoga pants. Dress like you're at work. Even if you're at home, get dressed. And it's all the same thing that I'm talking about. All of this is the same exact thing. It's also the reason why if somebody's in a certain type of band, they might feel the need to dress the part because then they can become what they want to be. Oh, you're in a heavy metal band. Better grow your hair out and wear a leather leather jacket. Otherwise, you'll never play. Otherwise, nobody will ever believe you when you're up there playing uh, speed metal riffs. Wear those high top sneakers. You know, it's all part of that. It's all your role playing. But since it's real life, you're role-playing in real life and therefore becoming the thing that you want to be. You're basically tricking yourself. But it is a magic trick. It's a trick, but it's a magic trick because you can actually become that thing. And it's everywhere you go. It's everything you do. It's going to the gym. It's working out. You know, because of course you're not going to wear jeans. Of course you're not going to wear jeans if you're going for a run where there's an obvious discomfort, it's obviously going to take away from the experience of running and make it very difficult and uncomfortable, especially if you sweat into your jeans, like pissing your pants practically. You know, so there are obvious things you won't do like that. But, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, just looking sporty, that's obviously a way that somebody transforms into that type of person, into the type of person who goes to a gym. And it's not just about you either, but it also becomes a thing that you look for in other people. Because when somebody looks sporty, we see them as a sporty person. I want a sporty girl. 
I want a sporty girl. You know, she's got to she's got to look the part. She's got to she's got to be wearing spandex with a blue stripe down the side. Oh, you I can see that you're very physically fit. But the fact that, you know, you're wearing I don't know, you it looks like you're wearing just like a baggy t-shirt and uh jeans. And even though I can tell you're physically fit, you know, I, I want to see you in in sporty clothes so that we can match. So that we can match. Um, but yeah, it's like that, you know, when you're looking for a mate or something, you know, there's sometimes you want them baddies. See, it's, he's really playing. He brought another toy over, a squeaky goat. So we just got sound effects going on here. But yeah, people, it's like you look for that in a mate too. Like if you're a girl who, who recently, say you're a 20 year old Zomer girl. And you just got into grunge. You were too young to actually experience it because you were born in 1997. But you're going through your grunge phase now since there are no new phases to go through, since there are no new trends and we are simply mixing and matching old trends and recycling them. You know, you're going through a grunge phase in 2020. And are you going to date that dude in a a football jersey with a turtleneck underneath it? No, you're going to date a guy who's also grunge or who also compliments you. So there's this element of like, you want to match with somebody. A lot of people think that way. Like you want to look good as a couple. Like I remember going to Blockbuster as a kid and it was a Friday night and there was this couple there and they were both in all leather like leather pants, leather jackets, and the guy had a ponytail. They weren't bikers. It wasn't biker leather. It was like this uh, designer leather. leather. It, was like, it was like that designer leather. Designer leather. Designer leather. Oh, hi. Come, come see my band. We're called Designer Leather. Um, it was like this, this, these full bodysuits of designer leather... And the woman had kind of kind of big hair, not like 80s big hair, but just, just kind of like her hair just went, you know, it was thick. It, was, it had volume, as they say. It was, she was using some kind of volumizing shampoo. And the guy had his hair slicked back into a ponytail. And they were very smooth. Like I said, it's, they weren't bikers. They weren't rugged. They, they had just these full leather suits, leather pants, leather jackets, they obviously cared about their hair, and I was just taken aback by it, honestly, because, I mean, yeah, sometimes you see couples who match, but these people really matched, and they were in, le- like, matching leather, too. You know, you could uh, you could practically purchase them together. If they were action figures or dolls, they would come together. That's, sh- that's what I should have said to him. I was like, if you guys were dolls, you could buy you together as a two-pack, as a Tupac. <laughs> I could buy you, if you were dolls, I could buy you as a Tupac. Um, but yeah, that's a thing. And you, you'll see sporty people like that too. You'll see sport people who are wearing their sporty clothes, their grunge clothes. People want to match. But it's also something that you project onto other people too. Like if you go into a place where somebody is a secretary or they're working at a front desk, you want them to look office casual at the very least. You want them to have a certain look. Otherwise, it bothers you or you feel like they're not as good at their job. And really, it has nothing to do with their skills, of course. But it's part of the ceremony. It's part of the ritual of that experience. In order for this to be the experience that it's supposed to be, this person has to look the part. Like if you went to the doctor and the doctor came in, you're waiting, you know, you're a patient and you're waiting in the, in the, the doctor, uh, whatever the room's called, the room, you're waiting in a room for the doctor, you're, you, you know, you're playing around with your thumbs and the doctor comes in with a clipboard and he's wearing a leather jacket and leather pants, you're going to be like, you're not my doctor. And it doesn't matter. He could show you the 10 diplomas that he has rolled up in his back pocket. He could show you the, the 50 diplomas he's acquired and all the years he put in to med school. But if he comes in with a ponytail, a leather jacket, and leather pants, you're not going to feel like that's a doctor. Whereas if he comes in in a white coat, or even just in an office casual sort of outfit, 
you know, because that happens too. It's not like every doctor you go see is wearing a lab coat. But, you know, you want the doctor to seem like a doctor. And it really, again, it has no actual reflection on his abilities. But I'm just adjusting the mic if you hear weird noises. Um, But, you know, it has nothing to do with his abilities, but you want that. That's part of the ritual. That's part of the ceremony of going to the doctor. You know, even these mundane experiences we have have a certain expectation. And as much as you might feel bad for fast food workers and think, God, it sucks that they have to wear that little visor and that ugly shirt. But if you went into Dairy Queen and they weren't wearing that, you might be upset. (laughs) If you went into Dairy Queen and the guy behind the counter was in that smooth leather jacket with a smooth pair of leather pants and a ponytail and the girl working behind the counter next to him was in the same thing if everybody at Dairy Queen was wearing leather outfits you'd be like what is going on here I'm gonna get a dilly bar somewhere else I'm gonna start my own fast food ice cream chain just so I can invent a dilly bar so I don't have to come here you know, you're going to you're gonna feel weird about the fact that the people at Dairy... You're going to feel like they don't work there. Because if it was an abrupt thing where just one day you went in there and they weren't wearing the Dairy Queen outfits, you'd be like, okay, so the Dairy Queen employees are tied up in the back and you're robbing the place. Okay, I get it. I mean, obviously, if you were accustomed to the fact that people at fast food places don't wear uniforms anymore, it wouldn't be a big deal. But it would still... It would take an adjustment. You know, it would still require an adjustment. So even these mundane situations where you don't really even care how somebody looks because you just want a dilly bar, there's still a ceremony to it, and that involves what people are wearing. And there's people, I've worked with people too who are from other parts of the country who are a little weirded out when an office does have a casual dress code. Like, I remember I worked with a guy who'd wear suits, and it was really out of place because nobody else dressed up. And then that quickly changed. He quickly realized that he stood out by wearing a tie. Uh, Or he might I think it might have been a job interview or something. He came very overly dressed for it, and that didn't, didn't, he didn't keep it up. But there are situations, you know, where we just expect that. And, of course, you know, a suit and tie is weird. I mean, I, you know, I was trying to make some interesting points here, and it's just now it's just become a, a suit and a tie. You ever look at a suit and tie and just detach yourself? You ever look at a suit and tie and just detach yourself from the whole experience and be like, it's kind of weird that he has this thing tied around his neck that's just dangling there. It's just kind of weird that this thing is just like you tie it this very specific kind of way, and then it just hangs there, and it's really important. And it makes it's really important that a very important guy has this thing hanging from his neck. It's true, though. You know, stupid like Jerry Seinfeld stand-up comedy aside, I don't know if that's what Jerry Seinfeld's comedy is like. I know Eric Stonefeld's comedy is like that. Oh, did you say Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, I think you mean Eric Stonefeld. Seinfeld, Stonefeld, easy to mistake, uh, but... But really, it is one of those things where you, when you actually are just sitting there watching TV and you see the president or you see somebody giving a speech and you just look at the tie, you just go, huh, you know, it is weird that that is a necessary decoration. And if somebody is a politician and they're not wearing a tie, you might think it's a little weird. You might think that something is off. You might feel like the ceremony is missing a vital element. And maybe the politician himself will feel that way if he forgot his tie. I left my tie at the hotel. I left my favorite tie at the hotel, my speech tie. And that, I mean, that's a whole other element too, is just the superstition you have about certain items of clothing. Like, oh, this is the tie that I wear when I give good speeches. I need this tie to give speeches. This is my lucky hat. This is my lucky leather jacket and leather pants combo. This is my lucky designer leather jumpsuit. I always find the best movies at Blockbuster when my wife and I wear our matching 
leather jacket, leather pants, designer leather jumpsuits. One time I wore just a blazer and jeans and I walked out empty handed. There was nothing for us to watch. We just watched TV that night and it sucked. But when my wife and I wear our matching designer leather outfits to Blockbuster and I slick my long hair back into a ponytail, I find the best movies, dude. I walk out of there with a bag full of movies. People have their little rituals that work sometimes for them because it puts them in the mindset. When you're wearing your lucky hat, when you're wearing your lucky hat, you it might not even be that you're any luckier than you normally are, but you notice when you're lucky. Because that gets into manifestation too. One of the key parts of manifestation, not that I'm trying to demystify it, because I don't think you can even do that. I don't think you can demystify manifestation. But the interesting thing about manifestation is by focusing on something that you want doesn't necessarily get it for you, but it helps you notice it when it happens. Because so many good things can potentially happen to you, but you might not notice them. You might not fully acknowledge them. And yeah, if it's your dream job, like, oh, I, I tried to manifest my dream job, you know, or, or not manifest, but I, I really wanted my dream job and I didn't even notice it when I got it. Although that can happen too. You know, that that's a common thing where somebody, I mean, you can find the person of your dreams and you're so caught up in your bullshit when you're with them that you don't realize that they were the person of, of your dreams until it's gone, you know, until it's done. And, you know, that might also be looking back on something, you know, and seeing only the good parts when there was a lot more going on. You know, some of that might not be totally true, but it can happen where you're so you're, you're not present at all when something is happening. So you don't notice that you had it until later. But with manifestation, you know, part of that is, is you're focusing on something, you're embedding that in your subconscious so that when it actually happens, or probably more likely when opportunities to achieve that come to you, you actually notice those opportunities and you know that they could potentially take you to that thing that you want. So that's a big part of that. And I don't think it's any different than wearing your lucky hat. Because when you're wearing your lucky hat, you might notice when good things happen to you, you might notice when your luck is good and you associate that with the hat, but it's wearing the hat makes you more open to the possibility of experiencing what one would call lucky things. And if lucky things happen to you, but you don't notice them, did that lucky thing even happen? It's like a, a tree falls in the forest and you're not wearing your lucky hat. Uh, did you actually hear it? If a tree falls in the forest and you're not wearing your lucky hat, does it, can you actually hear it? It's a similar sort of idea, though, where a lot of these things set us up to notice or they set us up in a certain way to take an opportunity when it presents itself. Because if we hadn't gone through that ritual, if we hadn't decorated ourselves in a certain way, we might not actually be aware of what's happening when it happens and the same is true for like gym clothes. Like you might not work out quite as well. Like your workout might not be as good if you don't dress sporty. Like you might not try to lift heavier weights. Like you might not feel like an athletic person if you're not wearing athletic clothes. Therefore, you're not going to push yourself as hard as you would. You're not going to work out as long as you would. I don't know. It could work. It could work that way. It could work out that way. If you're not wearing your lucky tie... You know that you're not wearing your lucky tie, and so you stumble on your words because you've tricked yourself into thinking that you can't perform as well without your lucky tie, that you can't speak as well without your lucky tie. Uh, and so part of it is you tricking yourself into thinking you need this thing. But, um, you know, you don't. The reality is you don't. And that's why you have to go against the grain because it turns out, you know, you're not actually going against the grain. Something that you think is the grain, like you think the grain, you think the flow of things is all based around this object or this outfit. And sometimes you need to go against that to realize that that's not even the flow. That's not even the grain. 
by not wearing your lucky hat, by not wearing your lucky designer leather outfit with your wife to Blockbuster, you're not going against the grain. And sometimes you need, it turns out the grain is something actually far larger than that. You know, the grain, I keep using the word the grain, but uh, whatever that is, whatever it is that gets you that is the outcome that you want, whatever it is that makes you feel like you're just swimming through life and it's a smooth ride and things are happening the way they're supposed to be happening, whatever that is doesn't actually require you to use a, a certain object or to wear a certain outfit or do something a certain way. It doesn't require that ritual, it turns out. And it's cool if you can get into that mindset by participating in that ritual or decorating yourself a certain way. But it's good to go against that sometimes. It's good to to not wear that outfit sometimes and see what happens. And not, not um, psych yourself out, as they say. You know, you don't want to psych yourself out. You don't want to obsess over the fact that you're going against your normal routine or your normal grain. But you just want to do it anyway to prove to yourself that you don't necessarily need that. And I have certain things in my life that I think I need. And sometimes I'll realize that I forgot them and things still worked out. Because I do have objects. As much as I talk about how you don't need these things, there are certain things that I just prefer to have with me. One of those things is this little shell. You know, my mom had a stroke in, I think it was 2016. Yeah, it was late 2016, almost exactly four years ago. Four years ago, last week, I guess. My mom had a stroke. And the day she had her stroke, she was showing a, a house. She was a real estate agent. And at this house, she found a shell. And right before I took her to the hospital, she gave me that shell and said, I found this today. And then she had started having double vision. She had a I can't remember what it's called, but it just, it was a stroke. And I kept that shell in my pocket and I've kept it with me ever since. If I switch jackets, I put that shell in that jacket. And I've had other objects like that from other people in my life. And I've gotten rid of those. I haven't gotten rid of this shell. And it's not like I feel like the world is going to end, but it does, especially because it came from my mom. And then the fact now that she's no longer with me, you know, that she's no longer alive, I guess would be a better way of saying it. Because uh, I do feel like she's with me. But, you know, since then, it's especially important that I keep it with me. And I've contemplated doing something with it. I've contemplated, like, throwing it into the, the Puget Sound. I've contemplated putting it in certain places. But I just feel like I need to keep it with me right now. Do I feel that it's absolutely necessary? Do I feel like my life depends on the fact that I have this shell in my pocket? No. But I think it is good to have objects like that. I think it is good to have rituals. It is good to have things in your life because it is about more than just that thing, especially if it has some sort of sentimental value. My lucky hat, my lucky hat, my, my lucky designer outfit, my, my designer leather jumpsuit has a lot of sentimental significance. My mom bought me a designer leather outfit. <laughs> and I haven't taken it off since. Uh, but there are little things like that, you know, and, and sometimes it does seem significant. I know I've talked about this before, but my Thor's hammer, my Mjolnir necklace, which I bought in Ballard when I was about 15, I think I was, Ballard being a, a major Scandinavian neighborhood in Seattle, at least historically, it was a major Scandinavian neighborhood. And my family first settled there when they came to the Pacific Northwest. So I bought this Mjolnir there, which is significant to me because my family first came there when they came to the Seattle area. And I, I was a metalhead, and I, I mean, I still am, and I, I wear it. I wore it back then when I was a teenager. And then I spent a few years not wearing it. It just got filed away in some drawer, you know, adulthood, and I just I wasn't wearing it. And then I found it again probably 2014 maybe 2013 2014 and it seemed significant it was in the middle of summer and it seemed significant to find my Mjolnir and I, I decided to wear it to work and at that point in time I was drinking heavily and I got I was really into this thing where I was wearing my shirts unbuttoned very far 
Like I would wear button-up shirts, like short sleeve button-up shirts. You know, I would wear these leather, these designer leather outfits. No, I would wear these just like a button-up shirt, even to work. I mean, this is obviously a place that didn't have strict, uh, strict dress code. And I would unbutton several of the top buttons. So basically, like my hairy chest was just on display. And I wore my Mjolnir. And I don't, I don't know about that fashion statement. I don't know about, you know, it was basically like a guy who would have been wearing a gold chain. That's pretty much what my look was at that point in time. I was wearing these shirts with the, the top of them completely unbuttoned, my full chest basically on display. But instead of a gold chain, I was wearing this Thor's hammer, which who the hell knows how that looked. But I wore it to work, and like this woman at work, and not even in a flirtatious way, kind of a hippie lady, she like reached and grabbed the Mjolnir to like examine it. Which is weird because she had to like dig through a, a jungle of chest hair. Not really dig, but she still, she had to touch my chest hair to touch the Mjolnir, which is a little weird. But people were really noticing it. It was weird. At work, people were, were very aware of the Mjolnir. And then that night, I was still wearing it. And it, keep in mind, this was the middle of summer. I think it was July. I went for a walk just around the neighborhood. I was feeling electric. I was feeling anxious. I was feeling electricity shooting through my body. And that was common when I was at that house just that time in my life. It was very common for me to feel this pent-up electricity at night, and I would just have to leave. I would go on a lot of walks, go out to the bar, but also just go on walks around the block. And I was doing that that night, and I started to notice these flashes in the sky. There was no storm forecasted, nothing like that. I just kept seeing these flashes, like lightning. Couldn't hear anything. You know, normally, at least in this part of the country, you'll see a flash of lightning, and then you'll hear thunder immediately. There was no sound, at least not yet. And I thought, what is going on? You know, is that a spotlight? What is happening? And it was near the mountain. It was near Mount Rainier. It was in the just right in the direction there. And so I kept seeing these flashes, and, you know, I was feeling electric. I was feeling anxious. I was feeling electricity just shooting through me. And then the thunder started, and then it became evident that we were having some kind of electrical storm. And it was actually near the mountain. A coworker of mine was camping on the mountain, and it was. It turned out it was like right above her. Uh, this storm, and it was odd because you know it wasn't forecasted. Nobody predicted that we were going to have this pretty serious electrical storm, thunder and lightning that night. And to me, it felt like my Mjolnir was activated. Like it felt like I somehow knew. Even this was the first day I had worn it since I was probably a teenager. I hadn't worn my Thor's hammer since I was probably a teenager. And so wearing it that night and feeling the need to go outside and the fact that thunder and lightning started on this summer night, totally, you know, not in the forecast at all. The fact that it started right when I went for this walk, it just seemed significant. And I felt a power up. I felt somehow activated. I felt like the necklace as some sort of charm, as some sort of magical object had been activated. And ever since then, I I wear it regularly. Not all the time, not everywhere I go, but when I wear it, I wear it very deliberately. It feels like somehow that thing, it's not like lightning struck it. If I wanted to bullshit you, if I wanted to come up with some truly fantastical story, I would tell you, oh, and then I was walking and uh, a big bolt of lightning flew from the mountain and it hit my Mjolnir on my chest and it didn't electrocute me, but I saw it start to glow. My Mjolnir, my Mjolnir, it started to glow. And then I realized then that I was the the reincarnation of Thor. Of Thor. Can you be a reincarnation of a god? I guess you'd be an incarnation. You can't be a reincarnation of a god or a demigod or anything like that. But you can be an incarnation but no, if I wanted to, to BS you, if I wanted to, to give to, if I wanted to fleece you, I'd say, yeah, my Mjolnir got activated by a bolt of lightning that hit it, and it glowed, and I realized then that I was Thor, and now I'm going to ask you for money. I'm Thor, give me money. 
no, but uh, it, it was a moment. And, you know, so I do assign some kind of significance to that day, that night, everything that happened. I felt it. I felt it. And since then, you know, I feel that that Mjolnir has a certain significance and I wear it for specific reasons. And I don't even, I don't always know what those reasons are, but it's just it's sort of a statement. If nothing else, it's a statement. I feel a certain way if I have that Mjolnir around my neck. Certainly, uh, you know, a degree of strength. And I've, I've mentioned on here before how there's deity yoga, you know, and you see that in Hinduism, this idea of deity yoga, where you do things to channel the spirit of a certain demigod, a certain deity, and you take on characteristics of that deity. And most deities have a positive and a negative manifestation. And you can take on either one of those or both of those. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead goes through that quite a bit, quite extensively. But it's not totally you know, different from that. And I think you can do that with any deity. And it's not that I necessarily think, oh, I'm going to take on the qualities of Thor today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out in the world and I'm going to act like Thor. I'm going to wear my leather designer outfit with my Mjolnir, because that'd be a good look. Somebody wears that. There's somebody out in the world who has a smooth designer leather outfit, a jacket and a pair of pants, and they complement it. They decorate it just perfectly with a Mjolnir. Um, but no, it's not like I go around thinking I'm Thor, but I, I do think it is sort of a power-up. I think you can have those things. And again, not something that I actively think about, but I'll just think, okay, I'm going somewhere, I'm going for a walk, I'm going to this event. I think it's a, a good time to wear my Mjolnir. I don't feel like I'm giving too much away either. I mean, there's some things I think I'd probably never talk about that I do, but I think that's a pretty clear one. It's pretty obvious why that's significant. And, uh, you know, we have those, and I think it's okay to have those, obviously. Obviously, I have those. We all do. We have things that make us feel the part of what... It makes us feel, you know, more a part of what we're doing. Whether it's wearing a sporty outfit when you go to the gym, you know, your leather designer outfit when you rent movies at Blockbuster, you wear the, the uniform that your job makes you wear, and would you not want to wear it? You know, if, if you're working at Dairy Queen and you're given the option of wearing your uniform or not, I think a lot of people would probably choose to wear it. They'd think, you know what? Like, it doesn't change the fact that I'm working at Dairy Queen. You know, I'm, I'm working at Dairy Queen one way or another, so I might as well wear the outfit so that I can... It's deity yoga. By wearing the outfit, by wearing my Dairy Queen visor and t-shirt, I channel the deity of Dairy Queen. I'm trying to think of who the mascot is. Who's the mascot? I don't, I don't normally give myself these, but sometimes I'll do a, I'll give myself a, a single Google search, a single lifeline and when I do have these, I only give myself one per episode because I don't want to just be sitting here looking things up. And it's very rare that I even use my one lifeline. But I want to know who the Dairy Queen mascot is. And as I'm saying this, I'm typing those exact words into my phone. Okay, not what I expected. I mean, I should have expected it. But uh, I'm seeing a giant ice cream cone man. <laughs> I'm seeing, I didn't know that this was their mascot. I was thinking it was a penguin. Because doesn't the Blizzard have penguins on the side of it? I think one of their products, one of their like paper cups has penguins on the side. So I was thinking that I was going to see a big penguin mascot. But no, their mascot is a vanilla ice cream cone with a face and arms. You know, I can get into this. I recommend looking it up. Look up Dairy Queen mascot. You know, these usually have names. I don't think it counts as... I don't think it counts as... I think it only counts as one lifeline if I'm still looking up the same thing. You know, I'm trying to see if he has a name. Oh, what? Oh, it's a woman? Madame... 
Madame Curly Cone Costa or Costa. I don't think this is real. I don't. I apologize that you're just listening to me read shit from my phone. Is it supposed to be a queen? You know, we're we're just all figuring this out together here, so have some patience. But I don't think I really have it in me to to get to the bottom of it completely. But I'm pretty interested in this at the moment. I don't know what that if that Madam Curly Cone Costa thing. I don't know where I, I just saw that in the results. I, that seems pretty out there. Because it doesn't look like a woman. I can tell you that, you know, I don't know I don't know what female ice cream cones look like, but I would not assume that this was a, a woman ice cream cone with a even though, you know, we don't know what they look like. You know, I know in Lord of the Rings that they say the female dwarves have beards. So you never know what the feminine side of a species looks like, but this doesn't look like a female ice cream cone to me. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to figure out if that was its actual name or not, but wow. Anyway, point being, there was a reason for that. There was a reason why I just searched for that. And the reason was, is that's the deity of Dairy Queen. That ice cream cone uh, with a face and arms, that giant vanilla ice cream cone, is the deity. And when a Dairy Queen employee puts on their visor and shirt and goes into Dairy Queen, they are partaking in deity yoga. They are channeling both the good sides and the bad sides of that, you know, whatever it is, ice cream cone, that vanilla ice cream cone with a face and arms. So, you know, I think wear the uniform. You, you, if you're a Dairy Queen employee, you already know you're a Dairy Queen employee. You know, if you're a Dairy Queen employee and they tell you, oh, wear what you want, you could, we're, we're a cool Dairy Queen. I'm the cool Dairy Queen supervisor. I'm the cool, I, you know, just to show you that I'm the coolest Dairy Queen supervisor in the entire country, I'm going to let you wear whatever you want to work. And you come in wearing a business suit. It's not going to work. You're not going to feel right doing that because you know you're a Dairy Queen employee. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying that because I think Dairy Queen employees are lowly. I'm just saying that the reality is you're a fast food employee and uh, you know that. So why are you going to try to hide from that? Why are you going to try to hide from that? You're not. So you're probably going to want to wear your Dairy Queen outfit. But the larger reason why you wear your Dairy Queen uniform is that that's an act of unifying with the deity of Dairy Queen. In doing that, you are participating in an act of deity yoga where you merge, your soul merges with the giant vanilla ice cream cone. And that makes you much better. That makes, you know, when you're doing the soft serve, when you're, when you're getting a cone ready for a, a kid... It makes you. It makes the ice cream cone look that much better, like it has a better swirl to it. And that's you know, it's not that you don't have the skill normally. Like you've been working at Dairy Queen for five years, and you obviously have the physical skill. You obviously have the ability to make a good swirl at the top of that ice cream cone. But you might feel like you can't do it if you're not wearing the Dairy Queen uniform. You might feel like you can't do it if you haven't participated in some kind of union via deity yoga with the giant vanilla ice cream cone. You know, you might feel that way. As automatic as it's become, if you change one little element, even if something has become totally automatic, if you just change one element, like wearing a different outfit... That could disrupt the whole process. That could be enough. And I was thinking about that with, uh, you know, the ritual of brushing your teeth. And I know it's really annoying to be like, everything's a ritual, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, one of those is, you know, just the things you do every night, the things you do every day, and you have a certain way of doing it. And the other night, I, it was earlier in the day, I had taken a shower and I'll tell you everything I did in the shower. No, 
Uh, I had taken a shower and afterward I was getting something out of a drawer and I used those little plastic disposable, they're like, they're like a, a little piece of floss on a plastic thing. You know, and I know those are wasteful because I don't even use like the picker. You know, they have like a pick, like it's like a toothpick. It's like a plastic toothpick with a little bit of stretched out floss on one end. And I use those to floss my teeth because it's basically the difference between not flossing them and flossing them. Like if I have to rely on good old traditional floss, I've just found that I'm less likely to floss. So even though it might be more expensive or wasteful, here I am justifying this to myself, but even though it might be, you know, a little more wasteful or expensive, I use those little disposable one-use ones. And you're sick if you use those more than once. You're truly sick. Oh, I'm very economical. I use the same floss more than once. I use the same little piece of floss all week. Um, that's what I do in the shower. As I, I just I use the same piece of floss in the shower. I mean, who, who flosses their teeth in the shower anyway? But uh, anyway, uh, this little one of those little things, one of those little plastic floss things, fell out. It fell out of the bag that it was in, and I thought, okay, I'm going to set this on the counter on top of my toothpaste so that I'll make sure to use this one later tonight before I go to bed. And I thought to myself, I was like, I'll be curious to see if I still automatically reach into the drawer to try to get another one out because that's what I'm used to doing. That's the automatic unconscious process. I'm so used to getting these things out of the drawer before I floss my, yeah, before I brush my teeth, before I floss that I don't even think about it. And so even though I've, I've deliberately set this one that fell out on top of the toothpaste on the counter so that I'll know to use that one instead of getting another one out of the bag in the drawer, I was like, I wonder if I will still reach in the drawer, even though I've kind of made a note that I have one out already. And because I thought about that, I was like, oh, because I thought about it, I doubt that I'll still go through the automatic process of opening up the drawer. Sure enough, when it came time for bed, I open up the drawer and I pull a new one out. And I was like, whoa, I did it. Even though I made a note that I had one out and I was asking myself if I was still going to follow my normal routine, even with that thought somewhere in my head, I still followed my normal routine because it is so ingrained. It is such a automatic part of my evening. And that was interesting. And it, it made me think how you can do that with anything. If you can train yourself to automatically, unconsciously reach in a drawer for this very specific little plastic thing with like half an inch of floss on one end of it, if you can train yourself to like reach in the drawer and get one of those every single night and you could do it in your sleep practically, what else can you train yourself to do? What else can you embed in your subconscious? And that's why I always talk about embedding things in your subconscious, because you can truly do it with anything. I mean, you can, that can be you getting up to get more food out of the pantry. And often it is. Like, you don't realize that that's a decision. Like, I didn't realize that, you know, I mean, I'm so used to, to my teeth brushing ritual being a certain way and the steps being exactly the same. I mean, it never varies. It truly never varies. And I do it every single night. I mean, I do it in the morning too. So it's like it's something I do twice a day, every single day. And the repetition of, of that over time makes it something that I unconsciously do. And even a minor disruption to it, like setting it on top of my counter and telling myself, you don't need to grab a new one tonight because this one's already out. Even with that in mind, it's such a, uh, an ingrained part of me that nothing can really disrupt that. You know, I don't think anything can really disrupt that. So it's truly a habit. It's like a spell. It's like somebody cast a spell over me that makes me do that every night. And it's the same thing if you're used to going to the pantry and getting another handful of chips. You know, you might not feel like you're even making a decision because you're so used to doing that. You are so used to feeling like 
some, not even hunger, but just a craving for something like chips or whatever it is you snack on, and you get up from the couch, and you probably step in the exact same way. Like if you were to, if you were to actually like, every time, let's say every time you got up from the couch to go to the pantry and get a, a handful of chips, let's say that you dip the bottom of your feet in a, in a, you know, a, a tray of paint like for like a, like a paint roller, let's say you put the bottom of your feet in, in some paint and then you walked there. If you were to take a different color of paint every night or even just in the same night, your footsteps would probably be in the exact same places. I mean, not really, but they'd probably be pretty close. It's such an automatic process and you can lock yourself into any kind of behavior like that. You know, obviously addiction fits into that. There's obviously things like that that you will do unconsciously. You'll just go up and get it. You'll just go and get it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it did give me a double take because I don't often think about that, even though I know that that's the way discipline works, even though I know that part of discipline is embedding this behavior into your subconscious so that you just do it and that it feels weird not to do it. You know, even though I know that's how it works, it still kind of gave me a, it made me do a double take to realize that this weird little flossing thing I do every night is so ingrained in me that it can't even be disrupted. You know, I, I don't know. But just the fact that you can do that with truly anything, that you can do that with the way you think. The fact that you can change the entire way your brain functions by repeating something to yourself and that's where mantras come in and I feel like that's been covered on here enough before but it is what they tell you to do it's why they say oh if you're looking for a job even if you don't have an interview wake up every day and put on the sort of clothes you would want to wear for the job that you want Put on the sort of clothes that you would associate with the job you want. And that will in turn kind of embed that into your subconscious. You'll start carrying yourself like somebody who has that job. So if you do have an interview or if you do, ha- if you do actually get the job itself, you'll come, across, you'll come across like somebody who belongs. And sometimes you don't have time to prepare. Sometimes you can't prepare yourself for something like that but simply doing it. That's where hitting the ground running comes from, acting like you've been there, faking it till you make it. All of that is related where let's say you're doing something and it's brand new to you and you feel like an imposter or you feel like you're incompetent at it. You know, the more you do it, obviously the better you will get at it, but it's not just a matter of skill. It's not just that you will be get better at the skillful aspect of it, you will also suddenly realize, oh, I actually feel like I am that thing. Or if you're like me, you'll feel like an imposter forever, no matter what you do. But still, you will find that you get better at doing that thing. I mean, the first time you wear a designer leather jumpsuit to Blockbuster, you might think, everybody's looking at me. I look stupid. You know, you might think that, you might be like, even though my wife and I are matching, we we look like the clothes are, like my friend Miles said, you know, about like girls who <laughs> will wear a leather jacket in 2020. It looks like the leather jacket is wearing them. You know, sometimes you'll get something new. You'll get a new article of clothing and you love it. It's cool. But you put it on and you're like, this look, this doesn't belong on me. I don't look like the kind of person who should be wearing a leather jacket. I don't feel like the kind of person who belongs in a leather jacket. But it might be one of those things where you fake it till you make it. And eventually you become the kind of person who belongs in a leather jacket. That's what you see a lot with people who get into certain subcultures where if somebody's 14 years old and they, they've decided they're a punk, I'm going to be a punk. You know, they, they might dye their hair and spike it. They wear a ball chain necklace and they look like a freaking poser. They look like a freaking poser, but they do it enough and slowly they, they kind of gradually decorate themselves. They get better at decorating themselves. They become more confident 
it kind of grows on them. They grow into that role. And next thing you know, they look like they've been a crust punk for half their life, and maybe they have been. Uh, but you see that where somebody, you kind of look at them and you're like, you, that leather jacket doesn't belong on you. But you might see them six months later and it's like, dang, you know, you look like a, a real leather jacket mama. I think I'm going to start calling you the leather jacket mama. Because you look, oh, that leather jacket's just great, baby. <laughs> it's just such a great leather jacket on you. Hey, uh, where do you think, uh, you, you think that a guy like me could ever have a chance with a leather jacket mama like you? Because here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Like, I'm looking for a girl, for a girl who, uh, who compliments me. First of all, like, compliments me with the, in the sense that you say nice things about me. But I'm also looking for a girl who compliments me in the fact that maybe we look good together. And we'll both wear... First, we'll start out wearing matching leather jackets. We'll start out wearing matching leather jackets. And then we'll, we'll work up to it. And we'll both get leather pants. And we'll both be wearing matching leather jackets and matching leather pants. And we'll wear that around the house a little bit. We'll kind of break it in. We'll get these designer leather outfits. And we'll kind of break it in. And then uh, maybe, uh, you know, let's see, a week or two. Maybe a month. We'll give it a month. So we feel really comfortable and confident. And then we'll go down to Blockbuster. And, and you know what? I bet that these leather outfits are going to be our lucky leather outfits because we're going to find so many good movies. I bet you we're going to have so many movies to watch, we're not even going to need to leave the house ever again. That's how it all happened. That couple that I saw when I was a kid in Blockbuster with their matching designer leather jumpsuits, it all start, they used to be posers. They used to be, neither of them were the type of people who could pull off even a leather jacket, let alone leather pants with a matching leather jacket, let alone two people in those outfits matching. Neither of them could have pulled off even a single, they couldn't even have pulled off leather shoes originally, but they worked up to it. And slowly but surely, through the great ceremonial process called faking it till you make it, they were able to make their decorations a part of them. And, uh, you know, you know how that story ends. They got so many good movies at Blockbuster. You know, they got so many good movies. All genres, all genres of movie. I mean, some people say that they're still watching movies to this day. I think, like, somebody looked in their window one night, a kid, a kid was out in the neighborhood, uh, a little peeping Tom was out in the neighborhood, and he he peeped into their window, and uh, thinking he, he thought he was going to see something hot and heavy, but they, was, uh, they were watching movies, and he said that you could see stacks, there were stacks of movies to the ceiling, he was like, where'd you get all those movies, and then the man saw him in the window and gestured just to a leather outfit hanging on a hanger. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how the rest of the story goes from there. I don't know. I don't know the end of that story, actually. I just know they're still watching movies to this day because that's how lucky those designer outfits are. I mean, they're so lucky that they, they you know, there's not even, I don't even know if there's a blockbuster still around. But they rented so many movies that they actually have... I don't even know what I'm saying. Uh, they have so many movies that Blockbuster closed and they're still watching movies they rented from Blockbuster because those clothes were so lucky that they found all the best movies and you can do that too. This is what little girls fantasize about. It's not Prince Charming. It's a guy in a designer leather suit taking him to Blockbuster, finding movies together. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave 
this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. So take.